0: Back we're back we're back. It's Fred Dreyer and you are listening to the Velo News podcast. I am joined today by Kaylee Frets, senior hey editor. How are you, Velo News? Kaylee, are you the Alejandro Valverde of this podcast? What? What do you make is us all look like? Do you make us all look like boys? <laughs> <laughs> I think you do. I think you're the Valverde of this podcast. When you go off, you just make Spencer and I look like small little children. I don't know what to say about that. Okay, and Spencer. <laughs> You were here, too. Uh, you are like me. You are not a Valverde, I'm sorry. Well, what am I, then? I'd say you're like a... Uh, uh, ooh, that's a very good question. Ooh, you didn't think... You only, you, only think one step ahead. I would say you one loo- step you're ahead. like a Miguel Kwiatkowski, because you kind of you look like him. Really?
1: Yeah. I don't you, think so. I do see the resemblance, but um, that's flattering. Yeah. Um, and how about me? I think you're... Uh, Gert Stigman's only slower. Uh, or a Guillaume Van book. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Maybe. Okay. Just a nice big
0: man just <laughs> smashes bikes. Uh, all right. Well, we're off to a great start <laughs> here with the uh, Velenies podcast. We have a lot to talk about today. Classic season is finally over. I feel like we've been talking about one-day classics for the last, I don't know, six months? Wow. It's been six weeks. Yeah. I'm sad to see it to go. While. Sad to see it go. Yeah, it's such a good time of the year. Uh, so we have to put a cap on the classic seasons. We have to talk about dominating performances by Alejandro Valverde. Bulls Dolmans doing some domination. Finally. Just crushing it. We're, we're going to go back and see who was wronger with our predictions for yeah. uh, Liege-Bastogne-Liege. And uh, I think we're going to have a little ask Cat 3. We got some Cat 3s in the house. I thought I heard a crash back Lire. there.
1: I thought I heard some <laughs> snapping carbon. Uh, yeah, yeah. Some, uh, some skipping gears. You guys yeah. are my two S- favorite cats Some trees. shouting. You really are. You're my favorite. Yeah. We try.
0: I said mix, not water. God, honey. Ball through. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's get into it. Guys, I want us to all go around the table and make the noise that pops into your head whenever Alejandro Valverde wins a bike race.
2: Kaylee, what noise pops into your head? Since, uh, since I edit the podcast, can I find a noise on in the internet and put it in right here? Yes. Like a fart? Yes, okay. may. Ready? Maybe a fart? Go. Okay, good
0: okay. noise. That Spencer, good noise. what uh, what noise do you make? Huh. Hmm. Huh. Huh. Yeah, it, uh, it's a big old huh. Well, when it comes to these Ardennes races, the noise that I make is... Uh, Nice
1: old nap on the couch of the dog. Uh, huh? No, I yeah. hate to admit it. A nice but way
0: to spend a Sunday. Alejandro Valverde is an exciting racer. He's explosive. He wins these punchy races. But ah, oh God, five victories at Flesh Wallonne, four at uh, Liège-Bastogne-Liège. It's just getting to be a little too formulaic. I feel like with this guy, and then well, you know, there's the three hundred pound gorilla, the mighty elephant sitting in the room, which is that Alejandro Valverde. One of our generation's greatest cyclists, Uh, he was a Puerto All-Star way back there in 2011, 2012. Served his time, came back to the sport, and uh, didn't didn't lose a step.
1: No. Didn't
2: apologize. Nope. Didn't even talk about it. Yeah. Didn't get any slower. Yeah.
1: So yeah, two months out, or two years out of racing, right? Mm. Two-year ban, basically?
0: So that... Begs eh. the question of huh. how do I we I like s- I like Spencer yeah. so I like, huh. <laughs> How should I dunno how do we as cycling fans, how should we process dominating Valverde performances like this? Um obviously we will always look at some of these performances with raised eyebrows, even if the A and B samples come back negative. But you know what are the, what kind of justification can we give here that maybe you know these uh, these races and these performances are are just and Valverde is just uh, doing a good job of winning races.
2: I mean, I, I would be more inclined to enjoy the victories if they were just better victories. Okay. Uh, Flesh and Liege were pretty boring. Yeah, that's <laughs> I mean that was that's much. his M O though, right? Yeah, I mean that's that's his M O is you know you wait 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 last climb go zoom. Beat and, everybody, and people also critique. You
1: know, for instance, Simon Gerrans for racing the same way. Uh, obviously, he's not as prolific, but same sort of tactic, and it does work really well in hard, hilly races. You have to save those, save those matches, and uh, Valverde is one of the best at doing that. Yep. Uh, I'll give you two other reasons. Mm-hmm. One is Julian Alaphilippe and another is Wout Poles. Both of those riders missed the Ardennes this year. Poles was the defending Liège-Bastogne-Liège champion, and uh, both of them had knee injuries. Uh, that's another, huh? Uh, Weird. Maybe not like a bad, huh? Just more of a, uh, who knows? But um, <laughs> Philippe, quick step rider. So if you think back to that Liège finale, uh, you had Dan Martin attacking pretty, pretty early, almost like with about a kilometer to go, and I was always, I was wondering if Philippe had been in that final selection and he could follow Valverde's wheel into the sprint, maybe that's your ticket to beating Valverde in that race. And similarly, Wout Poles is just, he's a beast. And, um, Sergio Henao was in that final selection at Liège and he's another sky rider. So who knows? It's, um, those two guys, I think that their, their, pre- their presence was missed.
2: Yeah, I'm going to go back to just the fact that I think that these races are kind of fundamentally flawed at this point. And we talked about this a lot in the the last episode, particularly surrounding the changes that were made to Amstel Gold, Um, you know, Last year, we had all three races finishing essentially exactly the same manner. At least this time, we only had two. We only had flesh and, and uh, Liege finished the same way, while Amstel finished with uh, well much more excitement and breakaways. And Amstel things like was that. great. Amstel, Amstel was fantastic. Yeah,
1: it was a great race.
2: But this is essentially the problem. So we are uh, we are we like to think in the post-epic EPO use era, and so the the bike racing has changed a little bit. Uh, the tactics have changed. What we can expect riders to be able to do has changed. Uh, and essentially what it comes down to for me, and this is why even though, you know, we throw some shade on Valverde, uh, you know, I don't think his particular performances are, are anything to that raise any, any red flags in and of themselves because he's still just using the one bullet that everyone seems to have. The issue now with these with these with uh, these series of three races, or I should say two races now, is that when everyone has one bullet and you have the last target right next to the finish line you know where they're going to shoot it and that is fundamentally the problem with both Fletch Pallone and Liege Best on Liege at this point I think that they need to follow Amstel's uh path and and think about changing up those finales because as much as I love those two finales in the last two or three minutes damn it's It's real boring for the previous, like, six and a half hours. Especially with Liege-Bastogne-Liege, with the distance and the zillions
0: of feet of climbing that they do, you do see guys come into this finale and they are gassed. And like you said, maybe they have one bullet, maybe they have zero bullets. And Valverde, you know, he's 37, he's... An experienced and cagey racer. You know, we give him crap sometimes for following wheels and never putting his nose out in the wind, but that is his key to victory. And so I, when I do start to think analytically about why Valverde is so good at these races, A, he's so good at staying sheltered in the group and never wasting an ounce of energy. B, the guys who have that one bullet that can counter him, it used to be Perito Rodriguez. He's retired. He's gone. Like you said, Ella Philippe, he's out. Watt Poles, he's out. You know, the only one that comes to mind is Dan Martin. And Dan Martin tried his best and he just went a little bit early. And so when you really start to break down and think about, you know, analytically why the races played out the way they did, it does seem to make sense. But still, the sight of Valverde. I mean, it just he just seems to have a different gear in yeah. these finales.
1: And so I don't like I don't I wouldn't disagree with you, Fred, but I do think you guys are kind of painting with a broad brush when you're talking Flesh and Liege together. That I think you've got different problems between the two if you're talking about um finishes that just don't get us excited. Uh the the issue with flesh is that you have such a steep finishing climb. And people fear it and wait for it, and that's when the time is to go. And for Valverde, that's an experience thing. He knows when the climb kicks. He knows how to hit it just right. Now, Liège, on the other hand, I, you know, actually, when it comes to the very final part of the race, it's sort of a little bit similar to the new Amstel route when you talk about the final kick up, quote, to Saint-Nicolas. And then from there, it's kind of a flat run to there's There is a there's, a, there's a, slight, a drag. Well, yeah, there's a slight uphill into Ons, but it's... We're not talking Mir de Hui. Okay. No. You know, and I think your point that you were getting at, Fred, about Liege just being such a death march. That is really, I think, more more so what is influencing the finale of this race rather than um the the actual like specifics of that final fifteen kilometers of racing, give yeah. or take. And and in and either way, we end up with a similar scenario,
0: which is kind of a boring result. I mean there were strong guys in that group. Greg Van Avermaet was in that group. Michael Matthews was in that group. These are guys with fast finishes who know who, you know, who who can put it into a strong gear and finish off a race and they did not have Yeah, that. none of none
1: of them could follow Valverde's no. wheel, eh? Yeah. Huh.
0: huh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, the uh. team, man, I, I had some high hopes for Cannondale. I'm going to admit it. I'm a Cannondale fanboy. I wanted them to win. I give them a lot of crap. But coming into that final, that uh, finale at Liège with uh, David de off the front. And Uran and uh, Mike Woods, I believe, was in the group. Yeah, and Woods went on to finish ninth, which is really Real quite impressive. Good. There was a moment. There was a glimmer,
1: yeah. guys. I had Second a Second run at Liege for him. I
0: had a glimmer. I was like, this this is it. This is the end of the streak. And then, no. Uh, they, yeah, they yeah, got stepped on. I really on didn't expect Like it lime green bugs. Yeah. <laughs> Splat. Uh, it yeah. happens it's, uh, um, So let's uh, So guys we gotta figure out uh, Who was wronger We did some predictions last week Of how this Ooh. thing was gonna play oh, out Oh boy Ooh. Okay I see it Big group comes into La Redoute Group of ten By the Roche aux Falcons And only three guys come to the finish line together Valverde dusts them to win
1: mm, that's, mm, that's pretty good. Chalk Total chalk. Total chalk.
0: Yep. <laughs> Real wussy big. Yep.
1: Uh, I'm going to I'm gonna say, I'm going to go out on a limb and say this is going to be a solo win this year. It The last time we had a solo win was in 2012. Maximo Glinski went, won in that year, and uh, he was really well prepared for that race. Did a
0: lot of intervals in the off-season that yeah. year. Yeah.
1: Um, but in all seriousness, I think Mikhail Kwiatkowski is riding amazingly right now. I see him going away on Roche-Faucon, and... Um, Taking a solo win and Kaylee's super pissed because
2: You just stole mine. I stole his idea. Literally hundred oh. percent. Take thievery. I mean, we could just both be equally wrong. Okay. Take heist. That's, yeah, he just took my take. Sure. Uh, no, I was thinking the exact same thing. I was thinking Kwiatkowski goes on Rocha Facon. Okay. Uh but I'm gonna I'm gonna, you know, just to change it up a little bit. Not a bad take. Um no, it's a pretty good take. So Rocha Facon finishes what, uh, twenty K from the finish? That seems pretty good. Uh, pretty I'm gonna far. say it goes a little later. I'm gonna okay. say it goes a little later. And it's a a last-minute, last-ditch effort from a small, already thin group. We're we're talking, like, it's already down to eight, eight, nine guys. Kwiatkowski goes on Conte Saint-Nicolas, which is right near the finish. Mm, The ugly Cote. And gone. Yep.
1: And Rigo Uran gets fourth.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Should we each pick fourth? (laughs) Yeah. Uran gets fourth.
1: Okay. Chocolate medal. Chocolate medal goes
2: to to Uran. (laughs)
1: Mm
3: -hmm.
2: You're saying Uran as well? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh
1: well. Come on. This isn't even.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's the. I'm saying Rui Costa. It's the Cannondale Championship. Chocolate chocolate medal to Rui Costa. Okay, I like that too. Yep. All right. We'll find out who's wronger. So
0: okay, I was right. You guys were both wrong.
2: Yeah. But I. Well, you pick. Ah. Bah! Yeah.
1: You, Fred, you won that one the way that Valverde wins these classics. Yeah, it's the most
0: boring and like, come on, picking. Yeah, I was uh, picking Duke in the March Madness yeah. uh, bracket right there with yeah. uh, with my choice there. I don't know anything about basketball, but I know what that means. Yeah, it's true. Um, okay, moving. It's true on. that I don't know what it means. You yet. know, guys, with uh, I think it was like twenty k to go. I was watching the race, and Kofidis uh, had a guy off the front, Ooh. and he was, uh, you know, he was chugging along. I can't remember which rider it was. He looked very tired. And in the chase group behind there was another Kofidis rider who attacked out of that chase group. This was right before La Redoute to like join his buddy, to join his teammate. And uh, it's a classic. It's a classic move. It's a classic move. It got me thinking of some uh, some Cat Three tactics. Oh yeah. And I think it's time for Ask a Cat Three. I think it is time. Okay, so here's the scenario, Spencer. Uh you are racing in in the pack. You got a teammate up the front, you're a Cat 3. What do you do?
1: Uh wait, wait, Fred, are you sure that's my teammate up the road? Because uh I didn't I didn't see him attack when when was that? I I uh I don't think there's anyone up the road. I well, think I think we're racing for the win right here now. Typical typical Cat uh, 3 move. Or wait,
0: no. Is that, a, is that a guy from the master's category? <laughs>
1: no, 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 that's a woman.
0: Uh, I can't tell. Okay, my cat three move, what you do in this, uh, in this scenario, you got a teammate up the road. You know, this is when you remember that you forgot to share that funny story on the team email, mass email, and you, gotta, you really want to tell him. So you just, uh, you just attack, go up there. Got to let him know. Got to let him know. Yeah. Or the other thing is like, you know, cycling's all about power and numbers, So if you got your guy way up the front, he's not doing any good for you in the back of that pack. So just tow that pack up to him, then you'll have two guys in that pack.
1: Yeah, I've watched the tour, so I understand drafting. Yeah,
2: I have one more question for you, two cat threes. Okay, Uh, I mean clearly Alejandro Valverde very difficult to beat. However, I think cat three probably has some good ideas. Yeah. How how would you? How would you guys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well,
0: Well, I got a couple (laughs) ideas. One way is you start, you're, you're riding in front of Valverde, you take a monster pull, and that's when uh, you remember that you forgot to take off your saddle bag and your gear bag and your pie plate from your bike, and uh, that just flies off the bike at that moment, wraps up in his spokes and makes him crash. Oh, perfect. Uh, I'd probably
1: like dive bomb him on a corner, like just do that, that thing where you like sprint up the inside
2: yeah. right before the corner. You, you, you tell him that you're coming inside though, right?
0: Yeah.
1: yeah, hold
2: your line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, watch out, Valverde. Got uh, some cat threes coming for yeah, you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to racing. Oh this weekend. man, some really good cat three action. Okay. Thanks, guys. All right. Yeah. Uh, moving on, let's uh, you know,
0: classic season. We're we're putting a fork in it. It's done. I had a great time. There were amazing races. I think we need to rank some of these classics performances. I think we'd need to decide who won classic season. Um, Spencer, you're my uh you're not Alejandro Valverde, so I'm I'm going to let you go first on this one. Who, okay. who won classic season?
1: Uh I I really think it's Greg Van Avermaet. Okay. I he winning Paris-Roubaix, second at Flanders, winning Gent-Wevelgem, winning E3 Harelbeke. Uh, you know, sure, he didn't uh, have a have a result in Milan San Remo, and it was maybe a little ambitious for him to try and keep that momentum going through Liège. He was only 11th there. Mm. You know, only 11th, <laughs> which is still an amazing result for a guy who's supposedly just a Flanders Classics guy. So I'd say Van Averment's a pretty clear choice as the winner. Clear
0: choice, huh? Well, you know, I think I'd give it to him if he would have made that final group. Uh, at Amstel Just a couple meters he's short yeah. So close You could have been on him
1: That's true But
0: he did end up 12th
1: in that race so.
0: yeah.
1: Getting those World Tour points yeah. We all love following the World Tour points standings Top Don't
0: tw- we? Top 12-er I'm sure he's going to be bragging about that one on Twitter <laughs> um, I am going with Quick Step as a team Winning the classics Anybody want to know why? Mm-hmm. Okay I'm going to yeah. eh. All right, so let's you, hear it you win Flanders? Yeah Good job Breakaway, historic win. Mm. Monumental. Monumental. You win with Philippe Gilbert in the Belgian national champion kit. All right, that's big. Uh, you win Amstel. Again, Philippe Gilbert just crushing people's souls. And you win the storylines at Paris Roubaix with Tom Boonin retiring. Mm, yeah, he didn't true. have that great a race. And yeah, quick step, you know, they kind of played their cards wrong, putting Stebar in that group. But Andy uh, called uh, Andy called Kolb a coward. Called Degan like a that. coward. <laughs>
2: You won the news cycle. Uh, We wrote a 10-page feature about him. Yeah, we should. I was about to say, we did. No, you did. (laughs) (laughs) You did. Uh, Quickstep
1: had a really good season, and winning Flanders is huge for them, Uh obviously.
2: Uh, Well, uh... it makes my soul kind of itchy to say it. Itchy, itchy soul. Itchy soul is the worst kind of soul. Itchy soul was my
0: favorite could Beetle, Beatles <laughs> album.
2: You know, get some Tenactin for that. Yeah, yeah. my my itchy soul hates it, but uh, I think Valverde. I think he, Valverde ooh, yeah. because those last two wins were, you know, they looked the easiest, <laughs> and I think that there's something to be said for that. I think that there's something to be said for the the, the power, if not panache with which Valverde won the last two races of the classic season. Uh, I think that's recency bias. Ooh, I recency think, bias. Yeah,
1: I mean, come on. Like, where he he didn't even race any of the the earlier spring classics. This you know is, what?
2: We're talking global. Yeah, uh, I mean, he would have won him if he wanted to. New yeah. <laughs> new Valverde
0: rule. We talked about this
2: on oh, the new yeah, show. yeah, Let's
1: okay.
0: We didn't we didn't mention this. One. No, this is a this Valverde, is a bonus bonus. Valverde, bonus Valverde rule. should be forced to race Flanders and Roubaix <laughs> every year now. <laughs> Soften the them lead- up a little to the Val
2: Soften to the Ardennes. I like I that. I think. He could win Flanders yeah honestly. yeah
0: that,
1: well there was a was a last season or two years ago where he made some noise about about trying for it and yeah. I think he had some sort of illness or an injury in the run-up to it and didn't materialize uh yeah, maybe um yeah but at quick step though yeah I kind of agree with you Fred but not uh, their only real major wins talking world tour here is Flanders uh-huh. um Ansel Gold Race only, yeah. And I know Flanders is their Super Bowl, but Greg but Van Everman Ever- won more World Tour races single handedly than they accepted in the, the balloon, spring. Though. yeah, they it with the that's true. That is a knock against. It's a them. knock against them. Sorry, Chabert.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, with Valverde, I think I don't know if he's won classics here, but he's he's winning 2017. I mean, uh, all those, uh, what, one-week stage races? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we're not taking that into account
1: for yeah. these rankings. But you're right. Like, holy, yeah. Just, are you sure
0: you want Quintana
1: Val- to be your leader for yeah. the Giro? Maybe, <laughs> Well, yeah. Chris
0: Froome, I saw this on Cycling News, is saying that Valverde is a Tour de France uh, contender this year. I think at this what, point- What's Cycling News, Fred? Um, some small some small website oh. that I heard about. Oh. Is that a blog? Never yeah. heard of it. New blog? I think at this point, like, Valverde could win the French election. <laughs> you know, like hey, I, hey, stick to cycling. I think that Valverde <laughs> no, no could, could win the Indy five hundred.
2: Oh, for sure. I think that he, Val, would, he, he would. Not have won. Little five hundred. He would not have won. Little five hundred. No. Does not have the uh, the requisite leg speed. That's yeah. true. Or the so he's, uh, he's a masher requisite
0: or the requisite uh, gear. Right. He has to get some Keds. He's got to get some Keds <laughs> some <Yeah>. for sure. <laughs> flat bands. Yeah. He's got some <laughs> other gear. Not that. <laughs> oh. Huh. Huh. Um. Man. Okay. Well. Agree to disagree on that one. I'm getting my quick step tattoo. The team will probably not be around next year, <laughs> and um, that'll be there. There is actually
2: danger of that. Yeah, yeah which is unfortunate. Yeah. Uh Yeah, it'd be it'd be a serious blow. I, to build I it's think like, they're going to be okay. They'll probably be alright. Something think, I tells think they're me they're
1: probably
0: going to be okay. They're going to find some Flemish brand for like some weird industrial product that we've never even heard about. That's like I don't know, or, or an agricultural product that has to do with like inseminating cows and Ooh. that's tractors. Yeah. It'll be tractor wheels, inseminating tractors. Um, Tractor-mounted
1: cow inseminator. Speaking, oh my god! <laughs>
0: speaking of tractors, we need to move on to Bulls Dolmans, which is sponsored by a tractor <laughs> rental. Rude. A epic. tractor
2: rental. Company. That was an epic segue.
0: Bulls. That you can rent a tractor from.
2: You Bowles. can rent a tractor from Bulls. Just to be absolutely clear, what Fred was referring to there. <laughs> that well, me. I mean,
0: I, I didn't sure. want to make it a Valverde segue. <laughs> uh, Bulls Dolmens, they're crushing it. They won all three Ardennes races and in dominating fashion, going one-two, with Anna Vanderbregen winning, Amstel Liège and Flesch, and Lizzie Dagnan finishing second place. Mm-hmm. And not it just was not even close in any of these races. This was the proverbial like, you know, steel-toed boot smashing the rest of the
2: peloton. So I mean, can we say it? Bulls is back. Bulls is back. Bulls yeah. is back. It's pretty clearly back. Pretty clearly, like, I don't know if they weren't trying before or just injuries. hanging out. They I, did feel some like injuries, sickness. Injuries I feel like illnesses. some
1: of the reporting from earlier in the spring was indicating their priority was higher. Their priorities were more focused on the Ardennes. Yeah. So uh, they, they just it just doesn't make any sense to plan. To me, personally. I mean, Grant yeah,
2: seems more. You know, yeah. the women's field does have the full Ardennes week now, which is, which is excellent. <laughs> uh, but for me, I mean, just like on the men's side, those early classics still mean a lot more to right. me, and I think to most fans. So, I, if if I was that team, I would I would be switching focus to earlier in the year. You, I, I would much rather win, much rather win Flanders than all three of the Ardennes classics. Well, the Bulls
0: Company is a big corporate sponsor. I saw of True. the Ardennes races, and of course, Amstel being a Dutch race, uh, right in the backyard of the two sponsors. But uh, I mean, what? What's next for this team? I mean, w- looking ahead, we have some smaller stage races. We have some other one-day classics. Like, does the rest of the women's peloton have a chance at this point? I mean, Van Breggen just looks so strong. Yeah, you know, the, the
1: races that jump out at me as I look at the women's world tour schedule, we've got um, the Amgen Women's Tour California. Mm-hmm. That's um, uh, that. That should be... I think pretty
2: they should be able to win that I think. Yeah, I do believe Megan um, Garnier is coming to that one yeah, and she'll be, be she'll be tricky to, tricky to beat. Her.
1: Yeah, and um you know the women's the well they call it the OVO Energy Women's Tour now, which is like formerly the Aviva Tour in in Great Britain. That's a I think that's actually a relatively hilly race. Very hard um, race. I yes. think I'm trying to remember who won that one last year. Uh and then of course Giro, the Giro Rossas. Yeah.
2: The Giro Rossas is uh, uh wow, it's always a hard race. It's an interesting course this year, too. It just sort of uses more of Italy than it's used in the past. And yeah. So it should be a really interesting race, I think.
1: And going back real quick to that British women's tour, it, it, as I expected, uh, I, I thought it, but I wanted to double-check, but it was uh, Lizzie Dynan won it last year. Right. Defending champ, British rider. You know she'll want to run that race She's on again.
0: good form. Yeah. I think she's the shoe in there. Uh, curiously, finishing third in all of those races, Katerina Niewiadoma, Polish rider. Good climber. She's an excellent climber. Coming on to form, but h- gosh, how must it feel to like be climbing really well, be on awesome form, and you just the only two women in the entire race you can't shake happen to be on the same team? It's really annoying. Yeah.
1: You know what else is the kicker is definitely in um, Liege, and I believe also flesh. She is the one who made the winning breakaway move, right? And so it's she she attacks. They follow and then they gang up on her. Poor
0: girl. Well, I'm sure she'll be their teammate next year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the way Bulls operates,
1: they certainly like to hire hire more talented riders than anyone else can, that's for sure.
0: You know, guys, before we uh, move on from this first segment into our discussion about the 1988 Giro d'Italia, we have to make mention of Michele Scarponi. Uh, Scarponi was killed in a crash with a van this past week while training outside of his hometown in Italy. Really, really sad story. Uh, I know there's been a lot written, put on Twitter, put on social media about his life and death. Um, But, you know, we just wanted to pay homage to him and to um, remember some special moments from his career. You know, the one most recently that stands out, uh, last year's Giro D'Italia, Kaylee, I know you had written something about that. Um, take us through the Scarponi performance.
2: Yeah, he, he essentially he essentially won the Giro for for Vincenzo Nibali. This is shortly after uh, the the famous pink jersey crash into the snowbank, and Nibali just needed a little bit of time uh, to take back on Croyswick, and Scarponi sat on the front going up the next climb and and pulled out the uh, basically precisely precisely the lead that Nibali needed, and it was a fantastic display of. Of uh, working for his team and uh, yeah, just just one of the ones that stuck out in my mind as, as one of his most recent uh, really sort of important rides. Mm-hmm. Scarponi was was I think people loved him for more than just his riding too. Uh, you know, Frankie the macaw I think is the most famous and you know, this this bird that would land on his shoulder when he was out training uh, near his hometown and, and he'd chat with it and put videos up on, on the internet and
3: Mini Frankie, oh, well. Eccolo, <laughs> grande Frankie! Dai, andiamo. Ti sono mancato. Ai, cosa fai? Ma ti ti piace tanto questo casco, eh? Dove vai? You
2: know, Scarponi was always known as the comedian of of the entire pro peloton, so he will be sorely missed. Uh, rest in peace, Michele Scarponi.
0: We are just a few weeks away from the start of the Giro d'Italia, which will be the 100th anniversary of the Giro d'Italia. It's crazy to think about sometimes, the history of bicycle racing. And for our annual Giro d'Italia issue, we wanted to look back at the history of the race and come up with stories that really spoke to American fans. And so the Naturals' place to start was the 1988 Giro d'Italia. This is the one won by Andy Hampsten. Now, most people have read about this. The story has been written about ad nauseum in various magazines in books and in websites over the years. And the stories that these, uh, these stories always seem to center on stage 14, the epic stage of Paso Gavia, the Gavia Pass, the stage filled with snow and cold when men got off their bicycles and cried And Andy Hampstead was able to take the lead after surviving the snow and the crazy treacherous descent and finishing second down into Bormio. And we wanted to take a different angle on this race. And so we sat down with Andy Hampstead, myself and Kaylee, and we talked about the race for, oh, God, what was it? Two and a half hours. Three hours, something like that. Yeah, a long time. Basically from stage one all the way to stage 23. And, you know, we... We didn't find this out, but in talking with Andy Hampson, we came to the conclusion that about a week after that stage 14, there was a stage 19. And the battle that went on in stage 19 between Hampson and his rivals was really the pivotal moment of the race. And it's something that people don't talk about too often because stage 14 gets all the attention. And we really honed in on it. We asked him a lot of questions. And then we started calling around to some of his uh, teammates from the 1988 Giro. And we put together this oral history, which is appearing in the May print issue of Velo News. It's on newsstands right now. It has the iconic photo of Andy Hampson on the gavia on it. And the title is The Forgotten Story. And it's all about this stage 19, the pivotal moment of the 1988 Giro d'Italia, and how Hampson and his teammates got to that point. Um, Kaylee you were there. I mean, set the scene for us when we were sitting down with Hampson and what his attitude was like talking about, uh, this, this crazy day.
2: Well, Andy lives in Boulder, which yeah. is handy. Uh, it was not too hard to get a hold of him and not too hard to, to get him to meet us at a, at a coffee shop, uh, over on his end of town. He does spend much of the year, uh, guiding bike trips in Italy. Poor guy. Uh, but he was in Boulder over the winter. And so we met him at Met him at Spruce Confections over on West Pearl here in Boulder. Uh, lovely, lovely sunny winter day here in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, sat down on one of the outdoor patios and actually got a bit of a sunburn. Got a bit of a sunburn that day. Andy was in a great mood. You know, he showed up. He rode his bike down. He always, I guess, he rides his bike pretty much everywhere in Boulder. Showed up on a sweet old old commuter bike uh, that someone had, had retrofitted with some disc brakes and things like that. Uh, we also had his his old Jiro uh, bike. So his old gyro bike had been hanging in university bicycles for a long time here in Boulder and is on his way to, I think it was, a, was it the Henry Ford Museum yep. where it's headed. Uh, it's, it's part of a sort of a, a, a collection of uh, ordinary Americans doing extraordinary things, I think was the, was the exact line. Uh, so he had, we had that bike with him as well. Uh, so yeah, we sat down at a, at a coffee shop. We also had the issue of Velo News. Oh yes. from 1988. Yeah, so this written is, about that day. This is a fun thing about about working at Velo News is that you know, this is the oldest bike racing magazine in the United States, and we have a library over on the other end of our office uh, with all these old issues bound up. You know, back when Velo News was was newsprint and was was, uh, <laughs> was much more frequent, and was also the only way that uh, that American cycling fans could find out about European racing. So. Yeah, we had, we had this big, long report from uh, John Wilcoxon, uh, former editor here at Velo News, And, you know, back in those days, without television coverage, without the internet, uh, he had literally written a stage-by-stage report of the entire race, and it was printed out in, in Velo News magazine. So, you know, before we met up with Andy, we we read all the way through that, for sure, and then we brought it with us uh, to the meeting. And essentially, we just we walked through the bike race with him. You know, it was kind of fun to we could actually fact check him because because i had i you know i had the i had the magazine in front of me i had this big story in front of me and there was you know there was a couple hundred words on every single one of the stages. Uh, you know, stages where not much happened, obviously shorter, and then some of the big important ones got got longer entries. You know, but things like where guys attacked and exactly what climbs they went over and how long the stage was, and you know what the standings were after each stage. And I happen to know it's uh, almost exactly 29 years ago now because it was uh, almost exactly a month before I was born. <laughs> and so you know, Hampston's memory of it is obviously a little bit fuzzy, particularly the moments that were not quite as jarring as things like the Gavia. So yeah, we just we went through John's old story while Andy kind of walked us through his own memories and, and tried to match those up as best we could, and then we really honed in on this stage nineteen, uh, which we had kind of identified when we were reading through through John's story as as this pivotal moment where he actually. Hampton lost the pink jersey on the road, and I don't think a lot of people know that—that he lost the pink jersey on the road that close to the end of the race, and not just lost it to some, you know, random breakaway guy who 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 gave 20 minutes briefly. He lost it to the guy that was sitting in third. Uh, This is a really, really dangerous day for Hampton and his 7-Eleven team. Uh, And we asked him and and a whole bunch of people that were there on that day to help us relive that particular stage, along with the entire rest of the race uh, for us in in Veleny's magazine. So the brief rundown of this
0: stage 19 is that Hampson comes into the day. He's in the lead. He's in the pink jersey. And the stage is a monster. It starts with the Paso Duran. It's like 3,000 meters or something like that. Just a big monster climb. And I believe there's three categorized climbs after that, Mm -hmm. followed by a relatively flat, run into the finish, and right from the go, this guy, Urs Zimmerman, who's in third place, attacks up the Paso Duran, gets a gap, and starts speeding away. And he was like the Alberto
1: Contador of his era,
0: sort of, the long-range attack, eh? Going for the big long-range attack. And so Hampstead has his, his guys on the front, and they're setting a good tempo, and they're whittling down the group, and all of a sudden... He looks around, he notices it's just five guys in this front group, including his teammate Jeff Pierce and second place, uh, who was Eric Broikink. And they are keeping the gap relatively stable on the climbs, but they're losing times on the descent. And the gap is growing and growing and growing and growing. And so like Kaylee said, at a certain point, he loses the jersey on the road. He has one teammate with him. He has three other guys with him who aren't going to pull. And all of a sudden it's crisis time. And he has to make this decision, which is basically, do I continue pulling over these climbs in hopes of keeping this gap in check? Or do I wait for the Peloton to catch? And, and his teammates. Maybe yeah. my teammates are in there. Hopefully they're in there. Maybe they're <laughs> gassed. Maybe they have you know good legs. And you know maybe we can mount a chase to bring these guys back. And in the moment, Hampson talked about it. There was not a clear... There wasn't a clear way out of this one. It was a decision you were just going to kind of have to make. Let's hear a clip from him.
3: I think we have, let's call it three passes. One of them, the Duran, you know, and they look pretty hard and I've heard of them. Um, But as I'm, you know, it's pretty easy at the beginning and, you know, teams completely keeping an eye on me. But with the warm weather, I'm trying to, everyone's trying to thaw out. And of course, you know, it's still an all out race. But it's fairly easy, and my friend Helmut Vexelberger, who's on the Italian Malvor team, he's my buddy, he's checking out my gears, and I have a 23 on. It's like, oh man, that's not enough, you didn't hear, because it's not in the race. You know, they purposely don't show it in the race Bible, but all the Italians know the Duran is really hard, and there's, I think part of it was dirt, but it's under construction. So there's over 10 percent a lot of it with dirt and it's another climb i go back to it a lot with my chingale groups um you know so i've done it a dozen times and it's it's really it's a very very hard climb and at the base of it oh so i on our car we have two or three wheels with a 25 or 20 i think a 27 you know which is really what i need so i get one pierce gets one maybe roll or someone Gets one, and now now we'll we know. Mid-race. Yeah, just pull over. You know, we're not going fast. Team takes care of me, but correct the mechanical problem. But Duxelberger is also saying, you know, I'm on an Italian team, and you know Italians, they're not really going to work together. But you know, they're all you're in the leader's jersey. They're all gunning for you, and now they're kind of embarrassed. You know, be careful on the Duran. So going up at um, Zimmerman in third place does a really good heart attack and I'm at the front but I have Roll Bob Roll and Jeff Pierce are just riding out of their skin doing tempo for me and we're down to five people you know more than half of the front little group is 7-eleven people so I make a decision not to follow Zimmerman on this long stage really early, you know, and neutralize it and deal with it later. I let, it, I let him go. And then Giuliani, who won in Innsbruck, jumps across. And now I'm not so sure about my tactics. Um, Roll has finally dropped off. You know, everything's decimated. But we have a lot of couple hours of mountains and hills to go so it's not really going to regroup so i still have Pierce riding really well but it's Broykink, conti maybe one other rider so i'm like oh let's let's all you know really gnarly descent straight into another climb you know so the train's sort of t- to my advantage but you know now they're a minute up the road and broikink plays the obvious card of making me chase you know i would if i pull then the other italian conti or whoever else it was will also you know with pierce pulling as hard as he can but no use burning him out right away if i pull the italians will pull but when i pull broikink won't pull and then he attacks me so i chase him like hey man i'm not gonna go that hard you know i'm gonna let it go before that happens and peter post is consulting with him and i'm consulting with um, going back to talk to Mike Neal, he said, Yeah, this is bad. This is, you know, Pierce can do, he can't go as fast as the breakaway, and you only have four or five minutes on, well, you have four or five minutes on Zimmerman, who's in third place. You know, you have to be willing to lose the race to win the race. Because if you just chase for the next three and a half hours, Broykink he's going to annihilate you on the flats going in. You know, he's such a good time trialist that if you, you know, you're in really good shape, but, um, you know, you can't. He's got us. So I just said, all right, I'm not pulling. Then I said to Broykink, call your bluff. I'm not going to pull. But our race radios between the two cars, we knew that the other group, you know, they sort of sat up like, oh, good, the GC guys are out of here. Or you know there were little groups of other gc guys chasing us but there was a pretty good group with my guys in it and the panasonic guys in it at five minutes so we just did steady tempo over the next climbs and i'm wondering what they are i should find out um did we do the staulanza i don't think i think we went into freely and i don't know the climbs these days so then we we waited you know let it come back together in the foothills and then Zimmerman was seven or eight minutes up the road with Giuliani. And, you know, Giuliani's going to win the stage, so he doesn't have to pull that hard. Zimmerman's super strong, pulling his brains out. This is, you know, great. He's really good at this sort of thing. But when, when the groups came up, I said to Broikink, you know, I'm going to throw my boys at it. You're going to throw your boys at it? Uh, yeah. So, you know, they start, you know, we have ten guys pulling – and then in the last hour or so, you know, there's still five minutes or so. Probably in the last half hour, there's Zimmerman still about his lead on me ahead of me, but he's he's still ahead of Broykink. So then Broykink gets nervous and says, "Hey, I'll help pull if you'll help pull." Sure, I'll help pull. So we got him back to three minutes or so. So I I think he moved Zimmerman moved up to third ahead of Broikink for that stage. So it, that was the most nerve-wracking moment for me in the whole protecting the lead the whole week was losing it on the road but banking on the cavalry coming up um, and I had, I had Lawrence, and Pierce Roll Alcala were definitely there, was there. and probably keyful yep. yeah. yeah and it's yeah. funny I found myself in you. a trap and it's Jeff Pierce won on the Champs-Élysées but this was and I've raced with him in the Coors race where he's you know been stronger than me but both he and Roll that day were the best climbers in the world. You know, for that, for that one climb when everything went down. And it, it's really fun. You know, I spent years with those guys. Pierce is a climber. Roll is not a climber. But he and the rest of the team were... They were so strong because we had the lead. And it... it You know, it's fun. We won the race. It was great. Um, but looking back 30 years ago on how much fun i had as a racer it was moments you know it was moments like this where sometimes we didn't defend the race but we're like you know we have to you know here's our tactic. this is desperate we have to chase or you know we can't chase yet and we're going to have to chase after this mountain or whatever it is and it's probably not going to work but everyone commits to it and we end up sometimes i mean i remember just little races like the tour of Americas, having to chase for hours and hours and hours in florida and the italians laughing at us and trying to discourage us and it's like all right you're right we're probably not going to catch that breakaway but here comes a crosswind and you just laughed at us you know because we're not strong we not racing well but we're gonna put this in the gutter and just make you regret it and it's you know and sometimes we come out on top and sometimes we didn't but that's those are the moments, looking back in my career, that I really enjoyed.
0: So there's a lot going on here, Kaylee. Um, I think one of the really interesting parts of this is, you know, in talking with Hampson and his teammate Jeff Pierce, they both had the, the conclusion that this was this was kind of like. A new wrinkle in racing. This was like modern racing tactics rearing its head in uh, in the Giro. B- before this, you know, waiting around for your teammates, trying to mount a big long chase, wasn't something that uh, riders would do all the time. Like the the right way forward was usually to just keep chasing, and you know, the guy with the strongest legs was gonna was gonna win on the day.
2: Yeah, I mean, Eric Broykink, who was also with Hampstead and and was watching his second place ride up the road, uh, was kind of freaking out from what we hear. Although he. He tells the story slightly differently. You did finally yeah. get a hold of him, and he told the story slightly differently. <laughs> uh, but we we're pretty sure that he was uh, not totally stoked on Hampston's chosen tactic to sit up and wait. I mean, they were waiting minutes. Yeah, uh, that 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 gap got real big for a little while. But you're right. It is more like what we see these days, where GC riders tend to be more reliant on their teams. I mean, you know, Chris Froome is the, is the perfect and most obvious example of someone who we very rarely see until the very end of these races. And actually, I would I would draw a lot of comparisons within this stage to something like stage 15 of the Vuelta. Yep. You know, the, the 4 stage. Uh, that was where, where Chris Froome essentially lost the Vuelta that year. That is a very, very similar kind of scenario. Granted, the, the move up the road was smaller back in 88, but it was a... Uh, it was a similar scenario in that you know Froome essentially had to make a bunch of decisions and when he was just gonna just gonna punch it and go for go for himself. The difference being that he didn't have a whole bunch of teammates uh, close behind him. He had a whole bunch of teammates way way behind him. So the interesting thing here is that
0: we spoke with a number of these 7-Eleven teammates and they talk about you know being in this group and charging along and trying to catch back up and all of a sudden seeing on the horizon this small little group of Hampson and Pierce and these other guys and once they made the catch, they knew exactly what to do, which is to get to the front and just start gunning it. And by that point I believe the gap had gotten to like seven maybe almost eight minutes and it starts falling, but you know, you're, they're playing the will there, won't they, game? It's uh, It's falling, but the kilometers are ticking down Too. And so uh, Raul Alcala told me that, you know, they were just pulling through and pulling, pulling. They pulled so hard that uh, like three of the the guys lost contact with the group in the final 2K. They couldn't even hold on. On the flats. They they were just gassed, you know? And so at the end of the day, they end up shutting the gap down, I believe, to under three minutes. And Hampson is able to keep the jersey. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's this dramatic moment that kind of got lost within the annals of cycling history, obviously, because of the gavia. But uh, it was really interesting to talk to these guys about this. Like you said, the, uh, the varying levels of memory was also really interesting to talk about. So I called up, like, Dag Otto Lorenzen, and he... Didn't remember anything he remembered the gavia <laughs> and he said i don't remember any of that rest of the race i'm like come on dagato this is the giro this is like if i raced the giro i'd remember every single minute of it and he's like ah i raced so many giros and tours de france and vueltas over the career they all just kind of blend into one and jeff pierce had you know real foggy memories of some of the other stages but he remembered everything from stage 19. Mm. Hampson remembered almost I felt like Hampson's memory was very clear for He had a, for most he had a race. very good
2: memory. Yeah, he was he was pretty good when we were going back through and you know he would actually he would ask us little questions like you know was this was it this stage that ended on this mountain and that was as soon as we sort of got him going down the right path he would you know almost perfect recall which is super impressive to me.
0: It's almost like the moment at which you were shining when which you really really shone was when the stenographer was writing everything down. And if it wasn't your moment to shine, if you were just kind of, you know, there and helping out or whatever, it just kind of got filed away in the the memory bank.
2: Yeah, not too surprising, I guess, you know. And that and, you know, any sort of emotional moment is going to be something that sticks in the memory a little bit. I mean, we did find that pretty much everybody we asked had a pretty good memory of the Gavia day. Everybody remembered the Gavia. Day. That is a that is a pretty uh, <laughs> that's not something you're likely to forget. No, a lot of stories of frozen hands,
0: of um, like ice freezing to your shin. Yep. Borrowed like, jackets. Yep, borrowed jackets. Raul Alcala had to pull over to the side of the road and ask fans if anyone would give him the jacket. He was just like, I was going to quit. I was so over it. And then a fan <laughs> gave me his 80s jacket, and I wrote down the hill.
1: never gave it back
0: either. <laughs> no, it still has that jacket. Um, anyway, Spencer, how do you think you would have uh, fared on the Gavia? You know, like you're a pretty robust, like strong guy.
1: I, my hands get really cold, oh, I'll say that yeah. much. So I'd need like the best ski gloves you could find, which is what, what 7-Eleven did at the time. They, yeah. they went out and shopped for gloves Jim the night before the race. That's how dialed in they were to what, what they were facing the next day. And a lot of the other teams were just riding their fingerless race mitts, which is crazy.
2: Uh, that was actually a recurring theme. Uh, was how well prepared Seven Eleven was that year, uh, not only for the Gavia Day, but a whole bunch of different times where they had done recon, where other teams hadn't done recon. You know, where maybe the Italians knew how bad a climb was, but they were the only non-Italian team to know how bad a climb was. They definitely brought a bit of uh, of American ingenuity to that Giro, and I think in many ways it's 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 what saved or won uh, Andy Hampson, well, the only American Giro ever. Yep. Uh, some of the
0: scenes that we got out of these um, guys remembering 30 years later are just great. I, I recommend everyone try and track down an issue and read through this. I love the um, Jim Akowitz's discussion of what the pre-stage ritual would be like. And it was basically the team would drive into a town with the cars. This was before team buses. And they would just find some cafe, like 5K from the finish. The whole team would go in there, order some espressos, sit around and talk about strategy for the day, snap some photos, pay for their coffees, take off.
2: doesn't happen anymore, guys. The good old days. Team buses are the worst. (laughs) Yeah, they are. Remove team buses. Every time I go to a race without team buses, I love it. VeloNees needs to have a team bus. Yeah.
1: Showers. Riders are soft, man. Riders are They're soft. Soft. Yeah. soft. Yeah, it's it's team back body. in the 80s, man.
0: <laughs> you got cold. You pulled over. You asked a fan for his jacket.
1: Go <laughs> you to know this team car. B.S. Well, you can also find this story online on VeloNews.com.
0: So be sure to look for it there, too, guys. We have the Giro coming up. Get stoked by reading this awesome story of Andy Hampston. Tony Mason! Guys, do you know what race is coming up this weekend? Uh, Tour de Romandie? Yeah, that one too, but this one's even bigger. <laughs> uh, Red Hook Criterium, even oh, bigger than that. Ooh. Mm. Okay, it is the National Championships for Collegiate Racing, and if memory serves me correctly, all of us... All three of us at some point spent some time in the old college ranks. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Loved it. Loved it. Last Loved time. it. Stopped so, racing as soon as I left, <laughs> basically. As we all know, college cycling in the United States is great for learning how to race and learning how to ride your bike, but it's also great for having some real college stories. College mm. cycling stories. Super college. Super college. So, I figured we could close out this week's uh, episode by going around and telling some collegey racing stories. Yes, yes, yes.
2: Who wants to go first? Well, I was—I kind of went back to college last weekend, actually. Yeah. So I was at the—I uh, was at Little Five Hundred in Indianapolis, and I was hanging out with the Black Bull team. I ended up sleeping on four chairs pushed together. Mm-hmm. That was pretty fun. You uh, can't use that as your story, though. No, it's not my story. Okay, all right. My <laughs> my my actual collegiate racing story. I was just, you know, I was just... It's a warm-up. It was a warm-up. It's fun to go back and be in college again. Uh, My my actual collegiate racing story is just a... uh, It's the most surprising return of security deposit award. Uh, And this was at Mountain Bike Nationals one year. And a teammate brought an airsoft gun. And we set up a target. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? (laughs) We set up a target on the mantle and, uh, you know, we thought we were just shooting little plastic pellets. We were like, oh, it'll be fine. <laughs> and then we sort of woke up the next morning and went and inspected it and realized that we turned it into a bit of a cheese grater oh. sort of look. Uh, but got our security buzz back. So we were, we were totally happy. Drove... drove the 30-something hours back to Colorado and and, uh, never talked to that poor (laughs) homeowner ever again. This was like pre-Airbnb where they could give you some terrible review like,
0: left weird pockmarks in my
3: house.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think this is a VRBO situation and we just, (laughs) you know, just never rented that house again. It was fine. Well, if you are a homeowner in whatever poor town that is, yeah, you know. I, I left out all of the details on purpose. Yeah, you know, you know what happened. Uh
0: Spencer, do you have any good college racing stories?
2: Yeah,
1: I definitely, I definitely have some. That I was thinking through them this morning. Texted one of my old buddies to try and recall some of the good stuff. Some there's there's a lot of funny ones, a lot of little ones. Like one of my teammates breaking his bottom bracket spindle in a downhill race and things like that. But I, I think my favorite or or my most vivid memory was this uh, uh, conference championship mountain bike race we did in Blue Knob, Pennsylvania. And in classic East Coast form, it was just the worst weather. And then that late fall weather you get where it's rainy and cold. And the start of the cross-country race was just so foggy and it was in this crappy little dirt parking lot like they always are and you literally just could not see where the race went but i think my funniest part of that weekend or the funniest story that came out of that weekend was how uh i think it must have just been the saturday night uh a lot of the riders discovered that there was a golf course in this lovely little resort town and there happened to be some golf carts Uh-oh. and these golf carts were not actually uh, very well locked up or oh, secured God. what could go wrong and uh, there nothing was nothing you know some people driving through course tape driving them downstairs I am pretty sure they don't do mountain bike races there any longer oops maybe not Sorry. Maybe, maybe not collegiate races but
0: <laughs> Sorry, Blue Knob Golf Course. We know what ha- what, what happened to your golf It was cart. Spencer's Fleet. Friend. Yeah. yeah. well, I don't know what
1: the statute of limitations are in Pennsylvania. Spencer so we'll uh, Salison. We'll keep it. Uh, we'll keep it. Yeah. We'll
2: Spencer's it at friend.
0: That. Oh, Steve. Steve. Steve
2: Presterson. Come on.
0: <laughs> okay. Um, okay. <laughs> well, like you guys, I have lots of funny. Wacky collegiate racing stories. There was the time that I thought I was going to win, put my arms up, and guys pit me at the line <laughs> after I'd been on, on a breakaway for a long time. There was the time—that's more of a, like a Cat Three story. That was a that. very Cat Three yeah, story. Yeah, yeah. I have the pho- I have photo evidence of that one time. Uh, the time that I was doing work in the feed zone for the for the A's, and I like it's was damn handing A's. up this damn A's. I was a B, and I was handing up a uh, toilet paper and uh, Krispy Kreme donuts. But I got to say, the one that popped Like when
2: they wanted water? Yeah, and you handed yeah, yeah. A roll of toilet paper? And I was like, sorry, all I have is this roll of TP. They loved mm-hmm. you, I bet. Uh, yeah, Be sure to wipe.
0: <laughs> um, I think the, the one that popped into my mind, though, is my first year of racing, I had like one pair of bike shorts, and I wore them all oh, the time. Oh, no. Including I crashed in a race, and- Tore them, tore holes in them, and continued to wear them as my one pair of bike shorts. So, the final year, end of year party for trophies, people just got like, because we were dirtbags, you know, we got like paper plates and drew pictures, caricatures of everyone, and handed <laughs> them out as the award, you know, like, oh, the strong leg award. Here's a picture of strong legs on a chinette <laughs> plate. And mine was just the pair, like, very vividly drawn the pair of shorts that I had with holes in them. And it was the get a new pair of bike shorts award. Do you, you still have that award? Yeah. I mean, those are the only ones I wear. No, the award. <laughs> oh, no. I just still have the bike shorts okay. on them all the time. Guys, it's the way to go. Uh, well, hey, we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters@competitorgroup.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on velnews.com. Subscribe to the Bell News podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. We love reading through all these comments. Become a fan of Vel News on Facebook at facebookcom magazine and follow us on Twitter at twitter.com/velnews. The Bell News Show and the Vela this podcast is produced by Bella News, which is owned by the competitor group. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the Velo News podcast, including those about Alejandro Valverde, are those of the individual. And as always, we leave you with a Brooklyn Boogaloo blow Blowout, playing the Bernard Pretty Classic Soul Drums.